welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Israel is a tiny country of 9 million souls on the shores of the Eastern Mediterranean. It's a true startup nation whose economic dynamism, freewheeling society, and status as the Middle East's only democracy has made it a paragon of progress and a major strategic ally of the United States. But Israel is also the subject of intense and consistently negative international attention. When tallied last fall by the NGO UN Watch, the United Nations General Assembly had passed 14 resolutions singling out Israel for condemnation in 2021, with just five other resolutions dealing with the rest of the world combined for that year. This, in spite of ongoing conflicts in places like Ethiopia and Libya, an internationally recognized genocide being carried out by China's government against its Uyghur Muslim minority, and humanitarian crises in Yemen, Venezuela, and elsewhere. And just this month, Amnesty International released a new report accusing Israel of being an apartheid state for its treatment of the Palestinians. That finding has been roundly repudiated around the world, including by Mansour Abbas, the Israeli Arab politician whose conservative party is now part of the country's ruling coalition government. Increasingly though, Israel is pushing back against the negative narratives. It's doing so officially through the outreach and messaging of the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as well as with the assistance of a rising crop of young, tech-savvy activists who are working to reshape the prevailing view of the country in the eyes of foreign publics. One of the most prominent is Arsen Ostrovsky. Arsen is an international human rights lawyer who serves as chair and CEO of the International Legal Forum, an Israeli-based advocacy network of some 4,000 lawyers and activists around the world. He's also a bona fide social media superstar who is one of the most visible and vocal pro-Israel voices on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. Arson and I have known each other for years. So on a recent trip to the region, I caught up with him to talk about Israeli public diplomacy, the messaging challenges facing the Jewish state, and the future of regional engagement. Arson, it's so good to see you. Thanks again for agreeing to chat. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Elan. Thank you. All right. I want to start with something we hear often, that Israel has a messaging problem. In a recent episode of this podcast, I discussed this issue with Jonathan Shanzer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And he made the point that Israel doesn't spend nearly enough time explaining and contextualizing its actions with regard to its strategy against the Hamas terrorist organization, certainly, but also more broadly. So let me ask you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, yes and no. Apologies for being the lawyer, but yes and no. I do think uh, there is some element of truth to it. So there's this famous quote from 2014 by Amos Oz. Amos Oz uh, was one of Israel's most celebrated authors, you know, this doyen of the, the, the peace camp, the left-wing camp. And in an interview in 2014 with Deutsche Welle, this is around uh, towards the end of uh, the war with Hamas in 2014, he, was, uh, he, he said, you know, I'm a man of peace, a man of compromise, but even a man of compromise cannot say to someone like Hamas, let's meet halfway. Maybe Israel will only exist on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And this is the kind of discussion that we seem to be having repeatedly uh, with uh, many in the media, many with the international community, calling on Saudi and Israel to reason with Hamas. The reality is, yes, we do face a challenge and we do face hurdles in terms of explaining our position, our situation. But it's just, it's not so black and white. 
over the years, Israel has invested perhaps only a tiny fraction of what it ought to have towards our public diplomacy. I think it's less than a country like Finland, but I don't think it's so easy to just say that, you know, Israel is struggling or losing this PR war. It's, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's also a very reflexive, uh, I think, uh, accusation to make. And Essentially, we've been fighting this war of narratives, not just a physical war, but war of narratives since 48. And yes, Israel does invest disproportionately more perhaps to physical security. I would say perhaps not quite fully appreciating the, the centrality of our, um, to having to explain our position on Iran or on Hamas or on the Abraham Accords or on all these other security situations. Um, we also have a fact that we are a very vibrant democracy in the sea of autocracies and terrorist regimes, where often our government, for example, will not speak with one voice, where you have different ministers speaking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It's uh, as if, say, in the United States, having know, the Minister of Agriculture or Housing talking about Russia policy. <laughs> it just, you know, it doesn't happen. But it happens here. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's a challenge. On the other hand, it's also symptomatic of our the vibrancy of this democracy, of this country where people do have a say. But at the end of the day, yes, I think there is a challenge. There is difficulty. But I think there is also a growing realization today that uh, we can't just win over hearts and minds by contesting every single allegation. We need to pick our battles carefully. And at the end of the day, where I think we've uh, lacked over the years is that whereas our detractors are focusing on images and focusing on human interactions and emotional hooks, we've been for so long, I think, focused on, uh, on facts, on figures, on um, hardcore statistics, which in the court of public opinion, it just it doesn't carry as much weight. I can give you a personal example. During the last war we had with, uh, with Hamas on just this past May, I had a number of posts online and discussions and debates talking about different aspects of international law, uh, how it relates to Hamas, to the, to the rockets and so on. But the one post of mine that had the most traction, that went the most viral, was actually in response to Alexandra Cortez, where she at one point had said something along the lines of that her heart is with the people of Gaza. And I'd literally just come out of a shelter with uh, my family and I took a picture and I just replied with, what about us? And so I think these kinds of emotional books is something uh, we haven't done. We haven't focused on nearly enough. We need to do that. We need to um, obviously invest more in Israel's public diplomacy. And that, that goes not only to different ministries and agencies, but also the pro-Israel community and the broader network, which really forms also a central part of when we are having these discussions and when we're talking about what does lead the media uh, narrative. Fair enough. But, you know, there's an old saying, if you want to sell people aspirin, you first have to convince them they have a headache. Does Israel itself know that it has a messaging problem internationally? It's a dynamic that is pretty evident from the outside on the global scale. But I wonder what the view was like from inside the Israeli government. How do officials in Jerusalem contextualize this information space that you're describing? And what are they trying to achieve these days? I think it was said once that Israel's image tends to be often event-driven as opposed to necessarily argument-driven. But I think also there's a reality that we are facing, it's, and it's also, I think, sheer mathematics 
that this is not an argument, this is not a battle that we can win. Uh, when we're looking at what's happening online, when we're looking at the power of social media, of fake news, of bots, of trolls, of uh, Al Jazeera, of all the people that go online, it's, it's sheer mathematics that it's impossible for us to keep up and it's possible for us to win, which is why, as I said earlier, you know, we also need to pick and choose our battles. Um, I don't necessarily believe that there is some kind of inherent image-driven um, problem. I do believe that um, over the years, and I'd, I'd personally I'd pinpoint it back to, I think it was 2009 or 2010, the Mavi Marmara um, incident with a terror flotilla from, uh, from Turkey that tried to go through the, the blockade in Gaza. And I can sort of see over those years, over those 10 plus years, how the mentality of Israel's uh, public diplomacy and uh, policy has changed in that regard. I've seen it with each campaign, that it's, uh, it has improved. For example, it's no longer simply a reactive policy. It's, uh, there's a necessity to be more proactive. The best example I can give you is with the Amnesty report just recently. Uh, we knew it was coming. So rather than wait for it to explode, the decision was taken not just by the foreign ministry and within government agencies, but also within the broader pro-Israel network to go out on the offense beforehand. And in doing so, to strategize, to create your messaging, and also to have that sort of first mover advantage where you try and set the narrative and set the tone. You see these days, you know, on every media platform that's available, that's, that exists, Israel is there whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, not only that, you see that in multiple different languages, Israel has over a million followers just on their Arabic language channel, which is incredible. It's mesmerizing. You're having these discussions. Take out now the narratives and the arguments and the sort of the uh, positioning vis-a-vis -vis the press and the media. The biggest change even in the last 10 years in so many ways, has been the media has been as a middleman. It's being removed. It's being made obsolete. When you can go directly to Twitter, directly to Instagram and TikTok and Telegram and all these channels, you remove the need to engage with the media, and you can go straight to the public. And in Israel's case, that includes also to the Arabic world, where previously obviously had no relations, where you can have these discussions, these uh, engage with people you wouldn't have had otherwise the opportunity. So I think a lot has certainly changed. Uh, there's much that uh, still needs to be changed, but at each campaign, there has been a sense of improvement. I want to drill down a little bit mm. on, on this precise point. The big takeaway from my trip, during which I spent time not only in Israel, but also in Bahrain and the UAE, is that the dynamics that were unleashed by the agreements that were concluded by Israel with Bahrain, with the Emirates, with Morocco back in 2020, are very mm. real and they're gathering momentum. There's now a tremendous amount of dynamism in the region, and there's growing economic and political and diplomatic connections between Israel and a growing number of Arab states. So obviously, this has given Israel a much bigger global audience, as you mentioned, because Arab publics are now tuning in in a way that they didn't before. How does that change things for Israel in terms of its external messaging? How is Israel navigating this new attention it's receiving? I think it's been a paradigm shift in, in so many ways. And when we talk about how Israel is navigating this, I think it's important to also differentiate. It's not only how Israel as a 
state organ is navigating this, but also how the pro-Israel network um, is navigating this as well, because public diplomacy in so many ways, what once used to be confined to cocktail halls by aristocrats and uh, you know foreign ministries, it's no longer solely the case. Today, it's essentially anyone can be carrying out diplomacy. You and I can be doing it online vis-a-vis -vis our social media digital channels. So it certainly, I think, broadens the scope. And in Israel's case, I think what's also important is that it's not always the message, but also it's the messenger as well when we're trying to make this case. So, you know, if I'm talking about a democracy, Israel's a democracy, it's, you know, it might come better as it has in the last sort of few weeks coming from members of the Arab-Israeli community who can uh, testify to uh, extend the vibrancy, the openness of Israel's democracy. With respect to the Abraham Accords, you know, it's something that uh, I look at it as sort of like a, a flower in some, in some ways, you know, it was the government that planted the seeds of this engagement, of this peace. But it's then been civil society and its business leaders, uh, academics, uh, cultural leaders, grassroots organizations that are essentially the, the water that makes it flourish. People to people ties, the delegations, the, the visits, the MOUs, the truly sort of taking it to the next level that, that we're seeing it now. You know, we're seeing it from Israel's perspective, you know, we saw the just in the last few months, you've seen Israel being at the expo in Dubai, something which uh, had never happened before. And for the first time, the Jewish nation is openly exhibiting at the um, at an expo in Arab country, you know, literally across the, across from the Saudi Arabia. From Israel's perspective, you know, it's really just uh, opened, uh, I suppose, the floodgates of our engagement with the Arab world. It's something that once was perhaps done you know, quietly, softly under the tables. Now it's not only not only in the open, but it's it's embraced. Um, Israel is embraced by the Arab world. When you have some elements of the community in America or elsewhere in Europe still talking about boycotts and sanctions, you have the Arab world literally rushing to embrace us. So this is really, from Israel's perspective, it's changed a paradigm in terms of our strategic interests. It's changed our acceptance in the in the Middle East in the Arab world. We are now engaging directly with the Arab world, not just in Arabic, but also in Farsi as well, with a, with a directly with Iranians even. So it's something, you know, truly mind-boggling that years ago we never would have thought we'd be here. But, you know, here we are. And this is all thanks to the advent of social media, because right now this is, this is like public diplomacy on steroids. It's incredible, fascinating time that's moving at such incredibly, really rapid pace that we're all trying to keep up with. Let's turn for a few minutes to geopolitics. From the Israeli perspective, what are the most vexing challenges facing the country? What are Israeli leaders talking about these days when they're messaging to the Israeli public? Right now, obviously, Iran is a major issue in terms of foreign policy. That's obviously the main centerpiece, especially as a deal with Iran is supposedly imminent from Israel's perspective. And that's, by the way, one issue where, you know, we spoke before about how Israeli government has, um, you know, every issue, you know, you say two Jews, three, four uh, opinions in Israel, you know, two Israelis, you have several times more than that, especially when it comes to the broader Israeli-Palestinian issue. But interestingly, and I think, you know, from my perspective, when it comes to Iran, there is near consensus in the government 
on the Iranian situation. And by the way, this is the most diverse government we've seen in Israel's history, from left to right, to center-right, to Islamist, to secular, and everything sort of in between and, and outside. So from a security perspective, it's uh, definitely Iran, Iran, Iran. And right now, I think it's the only issue that's at the center. Um, of course, you know, there's issues with Hamas and, and Hezbollah, but it's really, um, especially as we're on the, on the verge of um, agreement with Iran, which, you know, he has been spoken to something that's can we can expect to be spectacularly bad. So I think, you know, just as in 2015, it's basically wall-to-wall consensus on that. The difference perhaps is in terms of tone, the way the government here is approaching and especially vis-a-vis its uh, relations with the Biden administration in terms of how aggressive it is or um, how they're sort of trying to resolve these differences. So the Iranian issues are definitely at the, at the peak. Speaking about Iran, it strikes me that this happens to be one of the biggest problems for Israel in terms of messaging. Because historically, Israeli concerns about what Iran is doing in the region, the nature of the Iranian regime, all of this has tended to fall on deaf ears, both in Washington as well as in European capitals. So what is it that Israeli officials want the world to know about the Islamic Republic? And will the current negotiations with Iran on the part of the Biden administration fundamentally change things? Look, I'm not sure if what Israel will necessarily say will fundamentally change things. It appears, I mean, I would say we're leaning towards a realization or acceptance that a deal will happen. The, the West, the, uh, the Americans, the Europeans seem almost pathologically uh, intent on signing a deal to have something, to have, to have that piece of paper, that you know, peace in our times as a Chamberlain waved um, back then in, um, before World War II. So I'm not sure if there's anything quite honestly left for Israel to say or do that will dramatically alter this. I think they're looking at realistically more a plan B, plan B, uh, or suppose plan B and C, plan B being how can we mitigate this? Uh, what we, we can do in order to ensure that we maintain some kind of qualitative military edge uh, in terms of uh, weapons, in terms of first strike uh, capabilities uh, and the like, in terms of replenishing our defensive uh, systems. So um, I think uh, from Israel's perspective, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a fait accompli uh, because you know, there's no deal has been made yet. And uh, you know we're still talking in hypotheticals, but I think from Israel's perspective, and we've seen increasing trend by statements, including by, I think, Benny Gantz at the Munich Security Conference, uh, I think hinting towards the fact that uh, a deal will be made, but it's, you know, in terms of how Israel will respond. And we saw Prime Minister Bennett talking to American Jewish leaders, sort of underscoring the position that, you know, notwithstanding what the deal might be between Iran and the West, the state of Israel will not be bound by this deal. And at the end of the day, we will do whatever is necessary in order to defend our interest defend our existence, because for the state of Israel, this is not a merely a uh, small strategic threat, it's an existential threat. But the real difference also here is, I think, in 2015, it was just Israel speaking out. It was only Israel speaking out. Some of the Gulf nations perhaps were quietly talking. Today, it's different. Today, it's not just Israel. Today, you see the Saudis, you see the Emiratis, you see the Bahrainis, they're quite openly talking about, um, about the dangers, about the threats what they will do in response to a deal. So Israel is not alone in this. Um, and I think should a deal proceed, I think you might perhaps even see an even further strengthening perhaps of relations between Israel and the Abraham Accords countries, which coincidentally was one of the reasons what that brought us, I would say together in the first place is that 
common understanding of the common thread of, uh, of Iran to us. All right. So one last question, and it has to do with your own work. You're arguably the most prominent advocate of Israel on social media, and your tweets and your posts and your pictures reach thousands upon thousands of people daily. But what you're doing is about more than food and beach pictures, although there's an awful lot of those and they're great. What are you trying to achieve with your social media engagement? What story are you personally trying to tell? Uh, for me, public diplomacy is about storytelling, whether it's by uh, the state of Israel as a government or whether it's by me as an individual or whether it's by me on, as in an organizational capacity. It's all about storytelling. I'm trying to tell a story. For me, first and foremost, it's that we cannot look at Israel as we have for too long solely through the prism of a conflict with the Palestinians. Yes, there is a conflict, but this conflict does not define us as a nation or as a people. So what I'm trying to do in so many, in a lot of ways is to essentially broaden this conversation. So on the one hand, that yes, you will see me speaking out about Iran. Yes, you will see me calling out Mahmoud Abbas. Yes, you will see me calling out Palestinian terror and uh, EU or American policy. Absolutely, because that is a, that's a daily fact of life. But on the other hand, yes, you will also see me posting about food. You will also see me rejoicing when uh, Israel has made an incredible discovery or when our economy is booming. Because for me, Israel is all of these things. Um, it's not just about a conflict. And I think for too long, we have failed because we have allowed our detractors to define who we are. And we've always been responding as opposed to out there telling what is Israel's narrative? What is Israel's story? So when we're asking people to be, say, champions for Israel. What are they championing? What does Israel mean to them? And for me, Israel means all these things. It does mean that, yes, there is a conflict. And when we need to call out the hate and the lies, we need to do it. But on the other hand, we can't just be doing that. We also need to be out there being proactive and uh, using this, you know, this medium, medium of digital diplomacy, digital media, which has been, by the way, the single biggest disruptor of modern diplomacy because it's allowed us as individuals also and organizations and civil society to engage directly in public diplomacy. So for me, at the end of the day, it's really, it's about telling a story and it's about uh, trying to change people's hearts and minds. And we can't always necessarily do that with facts. We need to know the facts. We need to be educated first and foremost, because we need to call out the, the haters, the liars, those who are trying to maliciously uh, distort the truth. But at the same time, digital media gives us potential audience and a platform to tell our story, which we never would have otherwise. So ultimately, that's what I try and use it for, to tell the story of Israel. That's my story. Arson, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.